0: And the body senses these frequencies from like soothing music or soothing touch from a loved one, like a hug or someone holding your hand on a bad day. And automatically, almost instantaneously sends safety signals to the brain that says, if I'm safe enough, if I, if I have the time to pay attention to somebody holding my hand, then right now, then I can't possibly be running from a lion right now because if i was running from a lion right now i wouldn't have the time to intentionally pay attention to somebody holding my hand right how good that feels or the feeling and that's the same for breath right if i have time to pay attention to the feeling of air coming into my lung into my nose and down my throat and into my lungs then i am clearly not running from a lion right now and i can uh, and that and that's a subconscious signal that almost immediately helps facilitate a calming down of the body and a boost in parasympathetic tone which is reflected in heart rate variability do you want to know what
1: it is body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter
0: quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body needs
1: control your mind welcome to the body-mind Empowerment podcast I'm your host Simlund and our guest today is dr. Dave Rabin Dave has a PhD in Neuroscience and an MD in Medicine. He's a board-certified psychiatrist and neuroscientist, who has studied resilience and impact of chronic stress on humans for over 15 years. Dave is also one of the co-founders of Apollo Neuro, which is the world's first adaptogenic wearable device. It's basically a wrist strap that generates vibrations and rhythmic waves that resemble physical touch. They will then allow your body to feel safe and relaxed. If you want to try it out, then head over to com forward slash SeamLund for a 15% discount. That's A-P-O-L-L-O, neuro.com forward slash SeamLund. Dr. Rabin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me,
0: Sam. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, we met at the London Health Health Optimization Summit, and uh, you, you shared some really interesting uh, ideas about... Uh, consciousness and neuroscience. So I'm happy to talk with you on the podcast.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be able to share this knowledge with the world and, um, and also to be able to combine it with a lot of the things that you talk about on your podcast, which I think are very helpful to our communities in terms of improving health. So um, it's a pleasure to be here and I appreciate you having me.
1: Yeah, certainly. So uh, how did you become interested in uh, consciousness and neuroscience? <laughs> I think like that's not, not something that a lot of uh, kids or people are interested in. Yeah,
0: that's a good question. I think, um, you know, for me, uh, I think I start, it all started when I was a, a very young child, maybe in my, uh, I don't know, as far back as I can remember, it was probably like somewhere between like three and five years old. I was having, um, I remember having dreams that were very, very real, um, or seemed very real, and they were very real to me, and I would, um, you know, sometimes they were scary in the form of nightmares, but other times they were, um, you know, positive, um, or just neutral, like conversations with people in my regular life, and and I would, you know, be in my regular reality, and I would reference something in a dream, and the person or people I was around would say, oh, what are you talking about? And, and I would be like, oh, I, you know, I'd have this sudden realization like, oh, wait, maybe that didn't happen in in this reality. Maybe that was something that happened in my, in my dream. But it was so real to me that, you know, it was confusing that, you know, I was having these experiences that were, um, you know, it was hard for me to distinguish the boundary between dream and, and reality. And so I started asking people and, um, and I was very fortunate to grow up with two parents who were um, you know, Western trained physicians and and very loving and really tried to explain these kinds of phenomena to me as a, as a kid. But, you know, I kept getting different answers from everyone, but the general conclusion was, you know, these are just dreams, they're not real. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that didn't really sit very well with me because over time I kept having these experiences and what I realized was that they were very real to me and that they felt real to me. And so what the world around me was defining as real may not be the whole story. Um, And so I started to, you know, over time this kind of sat with me and I didn't, I didn't really spend a lot of time investigating it at that point, you know, or, you know, in high school and, or elementary school, middle school, high school, as a young kid, I didn't, I read a bit, a bit about it and I was really interested in science fiction and all these things that sort of talked about these interesting ideas, but I never really went deep into it um, until Later, when I started to read um, Carl Jung and a lot of psychoanalysis, dream work, and and the kinds of things that psychiatrists and psychologists were doing with their patients, then I realized that this is a fertile ground to understand the mind and to look at the way that the mind works and the way that we, um, you know, have sort of two different parallel worlds going on. You know, we have the world that we call the conscious world, which is within our level of regular awareness. And we call that, you know, being conscious or uh, being, you know, awake or aware. And then we have the world beneath that, which Freud called the subconscious, which is, you know, meaning kind of beneath awareness. Um, And it's still there, it's still present. It's just uh, not necessarily something we're always thinking about. And that really kind of fed my curiosity and over time, um, I became more and more interested in this area, and it eventually led me to pursue um, my my uh, graduate work in uh, neuroscience and then and really with a focus on chronic stress and resilience because um, and the same with psychiatry, because I was told by my mentors at the time that studying consciousness was kind of a uh, a very difficult thing to do, which it is. <laughs> and it's very you know it's very difficult to test. It's very difficult to particularly to study. Um, the subconscious, but when I, the more I read, the more I realized that there were very elegant ways to do this. And one of them that started to pop up in the last 15 years was looking at psychedelic medicines, um, which actually psychedelic, that word means mind manifesting, which is really talking about looking beneath our regular level of awareness, looking into the subconscious and then manifesting things from our subconscious into our regular awareness. Um, And so as I started to see, a lot of literature come up in the, in the scientific world um, that was, you know, coming out in top tier publications and about how these medicines were, you know, healing people or facilitating healing in people who had, you know, mental illnesses that were considered to be untreatable by Western medicine. It just continued to spark my interest. And that led me into studying psychiatry and, um, you know, figuring out new ways that we could work together as a Scientific community and with therapists with eastern medicine practitioners and tribal medicine practitioners to really get a better understanding and a better grasp on What is reality and what does it mean to work within the space of reality and consciousness versus subconscious and what can we Learn about that and to make our reality as best as it possibly can be
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good answer in a way and uh, it's so so true that uh... One of the most mysterious things in the universe is the human mind and the consciousness in particular like we we really don't know what it is or how does it work and uh yeah it's like a very very a lot of things we have yet to know and yeah it's quite a fascinating time i would imagine to be alive especially in like neuroscience because it's uh, with with the help of technology and like you said with with these different uh tools I would say like psychedelics or certain medications or other forms of biofeedback, they're going to help us to understand, understand like, what's the, what's the consciousness uh, all about?
0: Absolutely. And I, and I think that there's been an incredible amount of work that has gone into this over the years, that uh, I think have been done through elegant experimentation with pe- by people like uh, Eric Kandel who won the Nobel prize in 2002 and Francis Crick who won the Nobel prize for discovering, the uh, you know the the double helix of DNA with with Watson um, and um, and uh, who else uh, Christoph Koch and uh, a number of others who have spent their lives trying to figure out how to do um, from a Western experimentation perspective explore this level of subconscious or beneath awareness and really trying to figure out what is the biology behind the neurobiology behind these processes which is really fascinating and I. I I implore anybody to, who is interested in this topic to look up those folks because um, their work is fascinating and it really gives an incredible history of this field
1: yeah, yeah for sure but so uh, I don't want to put you on the spotlight uh, in the beginning of the podcast, but like uh, what is consciousness or how do you define it uh
0: so uh, that's a really good question you know I, I think this is something that is notoriously difficult to define um, I think that you know. From at least, and again, this is not a global definition because I don't, I don't, you know. I think definitions are something that um, are flawed inherently because definitions in our in our culture are things that we consider to be stagnant. So a definition means, um, you know, that this is the, the the defined meaning of something that sticks with that thing. And I think what what is more interesting to think about is the description. Of consciousness mm-hmm. and because the, the description is is uh, dynamic it's malleable and it changes over time and every person kind of has their own description of what consciousness means to them so what consciousness means to me and the way I would describe it is similar to what I was talking about earlier which is this idea of um, what is in our within our general level of awareness when we're awake in our normal in our sort of what we call or refer to as our normal waking uh, state without any kind of um, alterations uh, to our bodies. When you wake up in the morning without putting anything in your body, without taking any medicine or without putting any food into your body or any, anything except the things that you, you know, need basically need to live and survive, air, water, and food. And I think food in some cases, as you meant, as you talk about a lot, is um, debatable how much of it we actually require. Um, you know, these, these things, this state, this, it's kind of the base state of existence Is what I would call and the way we perceive the world in that base state is what I would call um, Our normal conscious experience or our normal level standard level of awareness. And this is referred to in the neuroscience um, As default mode or default mode network, which is the neural network that reflects the baseline resting state of the brain and body Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is that when and the reason I say this in this way is because when we start to look at different kinds of behaviors or or techniques or strategies or medicines that alter what we consider create an altered state of consciousness or allow us to explore a deeper subconscious level, something, you know, explore things beneath that that regular default awareness, things like psychedelic medicines or things like meditation, breath work, certain kinds of yoga, um, even certain kinds of foods, um, you know, these these strategies or techniques or medicines alter our consciousness and you can measure it by looking at this default mode network in the brain. And what we see is that as we use these medicines, particular things like techniques like meditation and breath work and psychedelic medicines, you see a disruption in the default mode network where the parts of the brain that are involved in that network, which maintain our sense of self or our sense of ego are still active, but they are talking to each other in a different way. Their communication patterns are different. And, That that difference in communication pattern is what we believe to be um, the reflective of this altered state of consciousness that allows us to look beneath our normal, what we consider our default or normal level of sort of sober awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like uh, there are like many different facets to consciousness and different states of consciousness so it d- depends a lot on like yeah what what does a person mean or what kind of a question are they asking about it and uh yeah like you know the i think the common sense definition of uh, consciousness which was given by one of the philosoph- philosophers uh seer he said along the lines of that consciousness is just uh, like this state of uh, wakefulness that you go through you know throughout the day when you wake up and until you go to bed so it's like a very common sense definition but it's like very too simple in a way to describe these other uh, like these other uh, conscious experiences whether they're related to dreaming or uh, or being under some other influence so yeah it's a very multifaceted uh, answer
0: Yeah. And I I think going back to that, you know, what you just said is very important because there's also a lot of different concepts of consciousness. There's our individual consciousness, which is how we perceive and feel in our normal waking day to day, our our own personal default mode, which is a very typically very ego centered. It's very self not I guess self centered is not the way that we describe it, but very focused on preserving the sense of self preserving our sense of identity and who we are. Um, And then there's, you know, this other concept, which is collective consciousness, which is the consciousness that we all share. Um, And that there is a certain amount of conscious wakeful experience that when you think about it, we all typically engage in together, right? We all, we all, um, you know, seek the same basic needs like food, water, shelter and air. Um, We all pretty much live on a diurnal cycle with nights and days. Some of us are more uh, like the nights more than the days to be awake, but we still sort of function on this diurnal cycle, um, of, uh, you know, typical human circadian rhythms. Um, and that these experiences are a lot of them in terms of the conscious experiences are shared. And that's, a, and that's something that Carl Jung talks an incredible amount about that is really fascinating. Um, and that a lot of that conscious experience that collective experience also exists on the subconscious level beneath our awareness in, you know, what he would call the dream state, um, which is really interesting as well. Um, so I think we're far from, you know, the answer of what is consciousness, but I think we have a lot of clues along the way that from many of the, of the folks who have worked in this area to help guide us to, um, navigate this territory.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like the individual self-consciousness is also always um i would i would always say i would i would like i think that the self has to always be like in relation to something else so hmm. uh that's that's why I like the you know if if there's no let's say perception of the outside world or if there aren't uh no one else to perceive or like if you're alone alone in the universe <laughs> then uh it's i would say it's very difficult to also like create a idea of the self because there's nothing else to like uh, relate to. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. interact with. So that's like the collective consciousness is always like the individual is always embedded inside the collective consciousness as well.
0: Exactly. And I think that that's one of the things that we don't talk about enough, which is that there, there is a sense of singularity, which is the collective experience that we all experience as a whole. Um, And then there's also the duality, which is the self and the non-self. And they both coexist at the same time, all the time together. So it's not that you only have one or you only have the other, but our brains are incredibly powerful at detecting contrast or detecting difference between A and B. Um, And we're really good at that. And that contrast between, you know, light and dark, good and bad, uh, black and white, these contrasts are the way that our world becomes very interesting and bright and colorful and dynamic and exciting, but they also exist within this greater collective of singularity, which is how everything kind of comes back together in the same. We all come from the same stardust, as it was.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, how how do you what you you know? Currently, we're recording this during the COVID nineteen pandemic, and so how do you? Uh, what what have what have you seen in terms of like some form of collective consciousness in the society or like some individual examples? Uh,
0: that's an interesting question. I, I think that we see uh, some examples. You know, are of all of us. You know, banding together for a unified purpose. I think is a really powerful form of collective consciousness. You know, people realizing that we all are sort of in this together. and that we all, um, and that what affects one of us can affect all of us. You know, we, I think we oftentimes don't, you know, we're, we're not often posed with, at least in recent years, we haven't had, fortunately, the threat of, uh, of an infectious disease like we have now, where we recognize that if, you know, one person or one group of people, um, acts irresponsibly and results in themselves being exposed, that they can result in the exposure and, an infection of many, many others, which is on a collective community level. And that that can create or contribute to um, very significant changes in the community and in the, the way that we treat each other um, and the way that we, for example, value closeness or togetherness because you know we start to fear um, that closeness because of the risks that it poses rather than, and I think that we see the op, you know, the opposite of that would be, um, you know, the way, and on the more collective level, I think, so I think on the self, on the self ego protective, self-conscious defensive level, we see people protesting in large part, um, protesting the lockdowns, you know, saying, I don't want to participate in this because I want to go out. I want to maintain my regular life. I don't want to be part of this collective lockdown experience. And and that's one way of thinking about it. And there are many people, particularly in the States, I would say, who feel that way. Um, and then the more collective experience that we see is, you know, when um, people all come out on their, on their, you know rooftops and and balconies when the healthcare workers come home after putting their lives on the line all day every day recognizing that we are quarantining ourselves so that we are not making an addition, creating additional burden on our healthcare workers who don't have enough supplies to take care of us and if we overwhelm the healthcare system and we overwhelm the hospitals that you know there may not be enough materials or supplies to take care of us should we get sick or our families or those healthcare workers who are taking care of us Right. And it's sort of this, this collective understanding of, wait, this doesn't, isn't just about me. You know, this is about me and my family and my community, which includes the people who take care of me, should I get sick? And so it's about sort of an understanding of the, of the current, of the situation that goes beyond the self. And I think that is really what the situation is calling for is an understanding that goes beyond the self. It's, it's kind of saying, hey, wait a minute, we've been very self-focused for a long time. Let's take a careful look at that and see how is this serving us? You know, how, is this, how is this defensiveness um, and this self-protective style of living serving us? And you know, maybe it would behoove us to take a step back in, this, in light of the current situation and think about how we can work together in a more constructive way to prevent things like this from happening in the future.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's I, I think like these kinds of crises uh, tend to reveal this uh, collective consciousness in a way that people either like band together or, uh, you know, form certain groups or something like that. So they do to a certain extent, you can see uh, how connect- interconnected we all are. And uh, definitely like, some people can also, let's say, you know, either show like support; they can band together and help each other. Whereas others uh, divide and uh, sort of, or they they may maybe even like um, create the vicious cycle of uh, spreading certain like ideas uh, for <laughs> or something. So the best example, the funniest example, is the toilet paper uh, thing. So the people just uh, panic panic bought all the toilet paper uh, because like someone set this on fire in a way set off this uh, chain reaction uh, you know and then everyone else followed so it's like a herd mentality so people tend to follow someone's lead and if if a certain percentage of people start to do it then yeah it's gonna go off in like a like a chain reaction exactly yeah
0: exactly and we see that all the time you know i think this just this just sheds a big light on something that's been going on for quite a while which is the, the survival mentality rather than the thriving mentality. I think it's, you know, the survival mentality is a very, it, you know, is directly tied to our balance of our autonomic nervous system and our stress response. And, you know, when we are in a chronically stressed out state, our sympathetic fight or flight nervous system activity is very high and we have tunnel vision surrounding um, self survival and survival of, of our group, of our family, of our, you know, of, of us, our group personally, not the greater group as a collective whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that hurt that, that her mentality starts to become, um, uh, or groupthink mentality starts to become much more powerful in terms of the way it affects us because we are, you know, we see other people doing things and instead of rationally thinking, wait a minute, um, you know, maybe there's a better way to do this for everyone, so that we all have some toilet paper.
1: <laughs> yeah. No.
0: We 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 think like, no, I just need to worry about myself, um, and then that becomes the the major focus. Which, in a lot of ways, you know, toilet paper is is just a minor example. But you know, I think that we can see in a lot of other places around the world that you know, if we that the survival of the self should not. Um, you know, it it, it it when we focus so much on survival of the self, um, then it excludes and takes energy and resources away from our focus on thriving, and thriving as a whole. Right? Thriving is really what we do when we feel safe. It's when our parasympathetic, our rest and digest and recovery nervous system gets activated um, by feel it by by um, you know this safety ex- and and whether that's momentary safety or or global safety, but it's that idea that you know focusing on you know my individual survival or should i be spending more time focusing on how to help myself and my community really thrive and grow more tightly together so that we can all help each other have better more fulfilled whole lives
1: Hmm. yeah definitely so how does uh, how does stress and uh, this sort of fear fearfulness affect the the body and uh, like like the brain or the consciousness
0: so, so uh, going back to the, you know, to the, the two halves of the nervous system that we were just talking about stress um, in the moment increases activity in the sympathetic fight or flight nervous system. And this activity is important if we're running from a lion in that moment, or, you know, there's a predator sleeping outside our cave or a tent evolutionarily. Um, if we're running low on food, running low on water, air, you know, we want that, that stress response to kick in. Because that diverts resources to slow metabolism um, and, and in, so that we save energy um, for emergencies and then diverts all of our bodily resources to generally our, our skeletal muscles, our heart, our motor cortex, and our fear center of our brains to get us out of a threatening situation to safety. And we want that to happen because we don't want our bodies to be sending our precious resources to our digestive system or our reproductive system when we're trying to escape a predator, Um, (coughs) which makes sense. And that system works in in a constant dynamic balance. But what happens is over time, if we are stressed, if we are chronically stressed, so stress times time would be what we call chronic stress. And this is, can, go, can be every day, every moment of every day for some people in the cases of you know, chronic mental illness like depression and PTSD and anxiety disorders, um, and, and also thing, you know, global existential threats like the pandemic, which affects all of us in this, in this kind of way, where we start to feel threatened all the time. And what that does is it increases activity in our sympathetic stress response nervous system all the time, which literally sucks resources away from our rest and recovery system. It it impacts uh, negatively impacts sleep. It impacts metabolism. It slows metabolism. It makes us gain weight in areas we didn't want to. Um, it makes us less creative. It makes us more irritable, less effective at regulating our focus and our emotions. Um, and it impacts our reproduction and all the things like we were talking about earlier that contribute to us thriving in our lives. Um, and so, what's critical to understand is that, and I think this was a huge deficit in my own medical training and many of my colleagues that I've spoken to about this, is that we are taught that this this nervous system balance, this autonomic nervous system, is basically functions in the background automatically. Um, even in medical school, this is what we were taught, and we weren't we were not taught. Um, that there are ways that are extremely effective at balancing out this nervous system to improve performance of the body and also improve recovery in the body. And so what we've, what I've learned through my study of Eastern uh, medicine pre- uh, techniques, tribal medicine, in addition to Western medicine, um, is that there are very ancient techniques that are scientifically validated to improve balance in this nervous system and to remind us that we are safe in situations that feel threatening, but actually are not. Um, So the reason that's important is because when we are you know, in the case of this pandemic as a whole, you know, there are the global threat of the pandemic could make us feel stressed out literally every moment of every day. But are we actually in a survival threat every moment of every day? Thank goodness for most of us. No. Mm -hmm. And so the strategies that we can use to um, improve that nervous system balance, to help us sleep better, focus better, um, be more kind and, and empathetic with our loved ones um, and also digest and reproduce more effectively and all of those have all those thrival systems working uh, at their peak and recovery at their peak is to practice techniques like deep breathing, yoga, meditation, mindful presentness, um, massage, self-touch, as well as touching others. There's a great article that just came out in Wired about the criticality of touch and how we are touch-starved because we've mm-hmm. been quarantined and that... Touch is one of the most powerful ways that we feel safe. And we know this because it results in the increase in secretion of oxytocin, um, the secretion of endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, all of these neurotransmitters and hormones that are critical decreases in cortisol that all help us to feel better and stimulate and boost activity in that parasympathetic recovery nervous system. And what's really important about all of this is not just that you can do it, but that it's Something that all of these techniques that we're talking about, for the most part, are things that you can do for free. Um, there, are, and the problem is that we've been practicing being stressed out. In most of our cases, myself included, you know, we practice because of the nature of our lives day to day. We practice being stressed out all the time, mm-hmm. and, when, and the brain works. and Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize for this in two thousand two. Is he? He showed the mechanisms of learning and memory are conserved evolutionarily for probably over 300 million years to ancient sea snails that only have three neurons. Wow. And what's really interesting about this is that those sea snails learn in a practice makes perfect model. The more they're exposed to stressful stimuli that they perceive as threatening or that are associated or neutral stimuli that are associated with threat, threat. Um, they learn to be threatened. They learn to get better and better and better at responding st- in a stressed out way to any stimulation and similarly if they practice safety being in a safe environment then they associate more experiences with safety and the neural connections between their three neurons just like our almost hundred billion neurons they get stronger down these pathways so the more we practice being stressed out the more stressed out we become and the better we get at being stressed out the more we practice and, and afraid And the better our sympathetic nervous system gets at being amped up all the time. And on the contrary, the more we practice these healing techniques and recovery techniques like deep breathing, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, regular exercise, massage, good nutrition, and and fasting, and all of these kinds of things, then the better we get at being balanced and Mm -hmm. being in a recovery state. And so all of this is within our control. I think it's in large part recognizing that it's up to us. That to start to, that we have the power, you know, we have the ability to engage in this healing process and activate our recovery and healing nervous system um, at any time. But we ha- we've kind of forgotten or deprioritized doing that because we weren't taught that it was important. We're taught that peak performance is important. But as we know from all of the studies of elite athletes and military, um, you, we cannot peak perform on a consistent basis without focusing on peak recovery. So it's really Going back taking this time to go back to the importance of that balance in our lives
1: yeah, definitely, like the brain is a plastic in a way it's a neuroplasticity Absolutely. that that uh, neurons that fire together are wired together, uh, which means that you know if you do something or if your brain associates a certain activity or a certain idea with uh, with, 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 a, with another idea or with another behavior whether that be being stressed out. Or uh, fearful then it becomes like a very habitual thing so it's kind of self fulfilling prophecy almost so if you are let's say in the example of uh, being stressed out and fearful in fear of the pandemic all the time uh, because of watching the news and whatnot then yeah you're like literally rewiring your brain to become more stressed out and more anxious and more fearful by default so it becomes like your default setting where you are constantly in uh, like a everyday setting almost
0: Right, and I think the most important part of what you just said is that not only are we training our brains to be in that state, but we're actually training our body and our brains to direct or redirect resources, precious bodily resources, away from balancing our immune system and regulating our immune system. Because the immune system is something that is activated and gets more functional when we're in a more parasympathetic recovery state. So it is a self-fulfilling prophecy because the more we stress out about things that are not actually an immediate threat to us. And the more we divert resources away from our immune system, the more likely we are to actually get sick. Um, and, and that, so that is truly, as you said, the self-fulfilling prophecy of all of this and, um, and that we can measure this now, and this has been validated as heart rate variability, which is the, um, I think most interesting biomarker that we have today for tracking the, amount of stress, not only in the moment, but also over time on our bodies and how recovered we are from that stress and how sort of able we are to bounce back. Um, And the lower our heart rate variability is, which is the way that the heartbeat changes in response to the environment, the lower our heart rate variability is, the more likely we are to get sick, the more likely we are to not recover if we get sick, um, the more likely we are to get injured um, or to not perform consistently. And similarly, the higher, on the contrary, the higher heart rate variability we have, the more resilient we are, the quicker we bounce back, the quicker we adapt to stress and recover. um, And, you know, we see the opposite response. And so that is actually a tangible, concrete outcome as a biomarker that we can track that over time, as if we practice positive healing techniques and recovery techniques, you can actually see a trending improvement in that biomarker, which is now measured by most wearables uh, on the market.
1: Mm, definitely yeah. h r v is um uh considered one of the most like uh indicators of this parasympathetic tone uh, or like uh being being uh not stressed out <laughs> if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah i would say uh well recovered and resilient
1: mm,
0: yeah yeah so i mean i th- yeah and it and it responds to stress in the moment it also responds to lots of other things so like if you move if you blink if you think about something stressful it can Move, it will move your HRV. So I think I think it's still a little tricky for people because they don't understand how to measure it. The measurement of it is a little complicated, and even if you measure it properly, interpreting it is a little complicated. I think the general easiest way to think about it is whether you're using an O ring or a Whoop or an Apple Watch or a Polar or whatever it is to measure your HRV. That we are generally focused on uh, overall trend upward over time, um, and if we're trending downward in our HRV then that is a sign that we need to make some changes in our routine.
1: Yeah. So what would be like some, you mentioned a few of them uh, of these activities that would help a person to calm down the nervous system and uh, like raise their HRV. Um, So I think the the way, I
0: guess going back to the way that we learned about HRV was through, originally was through biofeedback, which was looking at what we call respiratory sinus arrhythmia, um, which is uh, uh, the scientific term for understanding how the heartbeat changes in response to our breath. Because as we breathe, it changes the amount of um, inflation of the lungs, which changes the pressure that the heart has to pump against when it's pumping blood through the lungs. And then this shifts our, our heartbeat over time. And the cha- it changes the, in real time, it changes the um, amount of milliseconds bet- between each beat of our heart. And so this became known as heart rate variability, which is, a, which is like, the, uh, it's like the derivative of heartbeat or the rate of change of the heartbeat over time. And so um, from that initial work on biofeedback, which started in the 50s and 60s, uh, we now know that breath work, um, particularly breathing at a rate of between five and seven breaths per minute to start is the best way to boost heart rate variability and so, um, and it's also free, but it's hard to do if we haven't practiced it or if we're already stressed out. Um, but breath work is by far the best way to boost heart rate variability in the moment. Um, short of breath work, uh, the best way to boost HRV not, you know, with, with, that doesn't require a, a separate activity is sleep. Mm-hmm. So sleep is when we're at our maximal recovery state. It's when our mind is most dormant. Um, Our body is most dormant. We're in a sort of a very deep resting state. Um, And that's when we typically get our biggest amount of recovery. And if we don't sleep, if you sleep well, then you typically see a pretty nice boost to your heart rate variability. If you sleep poorly, you typically don't, or you see a decrease in your heart rate variability. And so that's one of the major, uh, that's probably the most important single way to make sure that we are recovered is to really focus on sleep. Um, but again, these are all tied together. They don't exist in a vacuum. Um, breath work helps us sleep better. Meditation helps us sleep better. Um, and so, uh, again, these things are really important to know, but they're also hard to do if we're already stressed out. And so part of the what, what that comes back to is why we invented the Apollo technology, which goes back to the um, evolutionary origin of, safety signaling in the body, which is touch. So so the parasympathetic nervous system, which when we increase activity in the parasympathetic nervous system through sleep, deep breathing, yoga, um, fasting to to some extent, biofeedback, meditation um, uh, is is great, but that all requires us as individuals to do something. Um, What's really also interesting is that heart rate variability And these safety states that reflect increased parasympathetic activity or recovery nervous system activity also increase in response to soothing touch and also soothing music. So these are frequencies from the environment that interact with our body and we don't really have to do anything. And the body senses these frequencies from like soothing music or soothing touch from a loved one, like a hug or someone holding your hand on a bad day. And automatically almost instantaneously sends safety signals to the brain that says if i'm safe enough if i if i have the time to pay attention to somebody holding my hand then right now then i can't possibly be running from a lion right now because if i was running from a lion right now i wouldn't have the time to intentionally pay attention to somebody holding my hand right how good that feels or the feeling and that's the same for breath right if I have time to pay attention to the feeling of air coming into my lung, into my nose and down my throat and into my lungs, then I am clearly not running from a lion right now. and I can, and, that, and that's a subconscious signal that almost immediately helps facilitate a calming down of the body and a boost in parasympathetic tone, which is reflected in heart rate variability. So Apollo was developed based on this, this understanding of the, of the neurobiology of touch and breath and meditation. And understanding what happens to the body when we enter these states, and then and so, but we wanted to create something that would help in entry into these states on a regular basis that didn't require someone else to be there and didn't require the user to really do anything. You could kind of have it run in the background. And so we took all of this neuroscience and neurobiology of these different pathways, and we created the Apollo technology, which is effectively a wearable that delivers gentle, soothing vibrations to the skin that feel like. Uh, ocean wave or an animal purring on your body or somebody giving you a hug or holding your hand. And it feels like that to our reptilian subconscious brain as well. And it instantly sends that signal to the brain that says, if I can take the time to feel this right now, then I'm clearly not running from a lion. And that helps rapidly deescalate the stress response in the body and therefore rapidly restore balance to the safety response recovery response parasympathetic system that we see as increases in heart rate variability as quickly as in two to three minutes. Um, So there are lots of techniques to do this. Um, Apollo is just one of them, but these are all tools that we can start to understand how to use in our day to day. And the more that we use these tools, um, the better we get at training our nervous system to be back in balance, which improves our recovery our sleep, our creativity, our reproduction, our digestion, and also our performance when we need to perform in whatever situation we're in.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good explanation. And uh, it is so true that the touch and the physical contact is like a very underrated form of um, stress management or lowering stress. And uh, like social isolation itself is a pretty uh, growing and uh, especially doing when you're quarantining and <laughs> and the social distancing So it's like a very, in a way it's making uh, people more predisposed to catching the virus if they are uh, Constantly away from others and in a way like the the narrative about the social distancing is also that the friend uh, that you 're talking to could could bear the virus and uh, right. <laughs> therefore it kind of creates puts them into this the other zone or the dual the dualistic aspect uh, that the other person that you would want to avoid and uh quite quite interesting
0: yeah and it's, and again I think as you 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 said you know it 's like a vicious cycle, and so it's really important for us more important maybe now than it 's ever been to you know, focus on these learning, these resilience enhancing techniques, whether it's using tools like breath or meditation, which, you know, you can learn about online for free and you can practice on your own for free, or whether it's using tools like Apollo or using um, tools like um, massage or techniques that work with someone else. But I, you know, not all of us have the benefit of having somebody else there all the time. And so, um, a lot of this comes back to radical self-reliance, you know, radical um, self-acceptance, radical self-love, self-gratitude, these very ancient tools that have that are really thought tools that have been around for a very long time. They go back to ancient Buddhism, ancient Hinduism, even ancient Christian mysticism and Jewish mysticism, and they're pretty much in common with almost all religions worldwide, if you go back far enough, which are tools like gratitude that literally in and of themselves Practicing gratitude helps to restore a sense of safety and balance to the nervous system because it reminds us that we are safe in this moment. Not necessarily on the whole, because we can't predict the future and we can't change the past, but it helps us feel safe right now. Mm. And ultimately, right now is the only time that we actually have control over. We can't control our future and we can't change our past. So if, so when you think about what anxiety is, and I talk to my patients and clients about this all the time, you know, cause they're like, why am I so anxious? What is anxiety? And why does it bother me so much? And what I tell them is, you know, anxiety is really when you break it down, it's spending, you know, our conscious resources, our attention in the moment, it's taking that it's precious attention that we only have so much of and spending it thinking about things we cannot control. And if you spend all that time, that limited time thinking about things we can't control in the future or in the past, instead of thinking about what you can control right now in this very moment, then you're literally feeding that vicious cycle of anxiety. Um, So, you know, it's so learning these tools, again, is more important now than ever learning how to use them, because when we learn how to use them, we can take them with us wherever we go. Um, And tools like self-touch is, you know, just as important as Up, touch from others, you know, and, and that's, you know, it's important and it's not indulgent or selfish to be intimate with ourselves. It's, it's how we build trust with ourselves and being intimate with ourselves allows us to gradually build more trust with ourselves, to be more grateful with ourselves and for our situation right now, again, not thinking about the future, not thinking about the past, but right now. And then that allows us to form more trusting, powerful, and meaningful connections with others and with our environment around us, which all kind of reverses that vicious cycle
1: into a positive
0: cycle of healing and recovery.
1: Yeah. So you talked about the Apollo. So what is that? And uh, how does it work? So Apollo is a wearable
0: technology. Um, You can wear it on your ankle or your wrist, um, but it actually works anywhere on the body. And it's a little pod about the size of an old Apple watch. Um, And it, delivers these gentle soothing vibrations that in a lot of ways are in, I think the best way to describe it is it's basically like music that, uh, I composed based on the neuroscience of sound and frequency and how we know that sound and frequency affect the body. Um, and it's, and it's music composed for your skin receptors, your touch receptors instead of for our ears. And that when our touch receptors feel those rhythms of music that, subconsciously usually beneath our level of awareness, it sends safety signals to the brain because the brain says, if I have time to pay attention to this feeling of this gentle ocean wave or this gentle touch on my skin, that I am not in an immediate threat right now. I'm not running from a lion. I don't have a predator around. So it brings us constantly back to the present moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, and, and, and we've, one of the interesting things about Apollo is when we were making it, we took a lot of input and tried to gather a lot of input, not just from scientists who had tried it and Western physicians, doctors and athletes, et cetera, but also from um, expert meditators and yogis and, and Tibetan monks and, these, and, and people like this who have an incredible wealth of knowledge in this area. Um, and they said the same thing that we were trying to do, which is they said, you know, we are trying, you know, what you've done is you've created a technology that helps facilitate mindful presentness for people who maybe have never known what it feels like to be in a mindfully present meditative state. You know, it's really hard for us. And we forget, I think we've been practicing being stressed out for so long, or practicing being in a hyper vigilant, hyper alert state for so long that we may not remember what it feels like to be still, mm. to be, you know, calm, to have that quiet of mind where we can just be here now, you mm. know, just be here now, not in the future, not there, not, you know, in the past, but just here now. And when you have a gentle, soothing touch on your body, it's one, whether it's from another loving person or from in a safe way, or whether it's from the Apollo or whether it's from the feeling of breath into our bodies, all of these things help facilitate that sense of mindful presentness right now. And as we practice that feeling, as we practice feeling present in the moment it reinforces the safety pathway in our nervous system, the parasympathetic uh, nervous system that that basically puts a check and a balance on our stress response. And it helps remind us that, Hey, maybe we don't, we aren't actually threatened right now. Maybe I actually have an other choices I can make than the choices I've been making in this kind of situation for the last X number of years. And so over time it actually serves as a training tool. It's not, it's not going, it's not a magic button. That's going to, you know magically change your life for you but what it does is it helps put your body into a a state that is safe enough to make change or start to make changes on its own and then that trains the body over time and the mind to be more in balance in the present moment to really start to think about what you we can actually control and spend more time thinking about that rather than all the things that we can't
1: hmm. does that make sense yeah definitely like uh it's uh, like a lot of the time it kind of helps the person to hit the reset button and uh, get out of the chronic stress out state because like if you're one of the worst or the least effective ways of trying to calm down someone is to like tell them to calm down or stop being stressed (laughs) stop being stressed out and uh, and so on so it's never going to work because they're already stuck in the vicious cycle so uh, they, they need some like a really powerful stimulus that would uh, put them into the parasympathetic state uh, much more efficiently. And uh, it could be like meditation and some other mindfulness practices. But like you said, it's, uh, it's pretty hard. And most people aren't, they don't have any experience with it. And they haven't, like, they're not used to uh, achieving that sort of a state. Right.
0: And, and I think the other thing that we often forget that I, that I, I think is really important to talk about is that you know, we as humans, if we, if we have one skill that we as a human race have adapted or have have, have um, to, that has gotten us to where we are, it's adaptation. Mm-hmm. Adaptation is our biggest and most powerful skill set. And what happens, interestingly, is that when we are stressed out, particularly in a chronic stress state, we get tunnel vision. In all of our senses because our entire conscious attention gets focused on survival and the self and protection of the self. And we forget about adaptation being our best skill. It's the reason why we have become the top of the food chain and we've overcome almost every single crisis that has ever happened since we've existed. Pretty much every one, otherwise we wouldn't be here, right? I mean, like like really taking a step back and thinking about what we're facing right now in the context of everything we've faced and overcome as a whole human race over the last several millennia, we are here simply because we are the best adapters. We can adapt to almost anything and we need to value that more than anything right now. We are not about stability. Stability is not real. It is a, it is a, a a facade or uh, uh, an idea that we kind of made up that we like to cling to but really what we what we are good at and what is our real skill set is an adaptation. Mm-hmm. And so what stress and f- the fear response and chronic stress what these things do over time is they they lead us to they make change really hard, they make adaptation really hard because any new thing s- triggers that stress response. And so it's that's why it's so important to constantly ground ourselves in um, in, our, in our skill sets, in our strengths like adaptation and the things we have control over right now like breath and um, the way we think about the world and things like that. Because as we start to recognize what we have more control over, then we settle that stress response. And as we start to stimulate the body in a way that reminds the body that it's safe, then that also in turn reminds the mind that it's safe. And that literally you know puts us back into a state where we remember how to adapt more effectively to change or to stress
1: yeah definitely like the adaptation is huge and we are constantly adapting to uh, whatever kind of stimulus we're faced with and if it's uh like a if it's a not not necessarily a healthy stimulus then it's going to have like a negative effect on our health and uh, vice versa if it's a healthy thing then uh, we'll adapt in a positive way so uh yeah it's 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 um, so true that uh, we we can adapt to many things, uh, but whether or not we're capable of doing it also depends a lot on our like um, h- how much um, resources we have. In a way, mm-hmm. if, we're, if we're stressed out, then the stress itself depletes our adaptation uh, resources, so we'll be able to adapt, or we'll be less able to adapt to future stressors. And exactly. if if we're if we're fully recovered, if we had like a good night's sleep, if we're properly nourished if we have had like enough uh, physical touch and and so on then we'll also be able to endure the stress much better exactly that's exactly right yeah
0: and so and so i think more more importantly than ever now is a time for us to really embrace that ability that in that innate evolved ability that we have to adapt and try to do everything we can to strengthen that. And that's why heart rate variability, HRV is so important because in a lot of ways, what HRV reflects and having is that having high HRV means that we are much more able to adapt to whatever comes at us.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So uh, it's been great talking with you and I'm going to start wrapping the podcast up as well. Uh, Before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and and your work and where can you get the Apollo? So you
0: can learn more about Apollo and about um, my work on Apollo at ApolloNeuro.com. That's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com or ApolloNeuroscience.com. And uh, you can also learn more about me on my website, DrDave.io. And I also am the Executive Director of the Board of Medicine. Uh, boardofmedicine.org, which works to um, really promote um, safe medicine, um, natural medicine and technological medicine that helps to alleviate um, a lot of the suffering and the side effects that are caused by overprescription of medicines that um, have a high risk of side effects and really endorses medicine that empowers people to heal themselves and activates this inner ability to adapt that we all have.
1: Um, and you can also
0: reach me on social. If you want to get in direct touch, I'm on Twitter at Dave Rabin and on Instagram at Dr. David Raven.
1: Nice. Awesome. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner?
0: The, so that's a great question. I, I think that what I, the two, I, I, I'm going to say two things. Um, the first is gratitude. I wish I had understood and had people teach me about gratitude sooner, because gratitude is not just some woo-woo thing, (laughs) that it's actually a skill that it can be neurobiologically entrained. And the more we practice gratitude on a moment-to-moment daily basis, you know, really just instead of thinking every moment, like, oh, why me? We can think about, I am so grateful for this moment. I'm so grateful for being able to take a breath in this moment and to be here now. The more we practice that gratitude, the more we literally strengthen our neural networks around gratitude, which make which enhances our own ability to balance our nervous system, and that's the foundation of what we what in traditional Hindu and tribal and Buddhist medicine are um, and disciplines call the four pillars, which are self gratitude is the first, self forgiveness self-compassion and self-love and practicing these four things towards ourself creates a foundation of trust in ourselves. that allows us to be able to more effectively show those skills towards others in our, in our lives that we care about. And I think the last thing that's really important is that practice makes perfect. So as Eric Candela has shown, my mom always told me this, as probably many other people had, you know, role models tell them this growing up, but you never really understood it because I didn't know why. But ultimately, the more we practice these skill sets, whether it's gratitude or forgiveness or compassion or self-love, or whether it's being angry at ourselves or being stressed out, the better we get at those things. So if we're going to practice anything, we might as well spend that time practicing things that make us better and, and make us more whole.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's uh, good, good advice. And uh, your brain is always like listening in a way of what you're doing and what kind, of, uh, what kind of information are you giving it.
0: That's exactly right.
1: Yeah, well, it's been great. Feed it, good, feed
0: it goodness. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. So it's been great talking with you and uh, would like to have you back on the show in the future when, like, when all this thing has uh, settled and we have like other topics to talk about.
0: Absolutely. It would be...
1: Uh, I'd love to do that and I really appreciate you for having me. Yeah, I'll stay in touch. If you want to try it out, then head over to apollonurocom forward slash for a 15% discount. That's neuro.com forward slash